You are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. Well, good afternoon, everybody. So pleased that you could join me here today for another live question and answer time on my YouTube channel. Uh, this also goes out on a podcast if you're interested in that. So you can access that either from the YouTube channel or go to EnduringWord.com, which is the website where I make my Bible resources available and you can find them then. If we've never been introduced before, my name is David Guzik. I'm a pastor, a Bible teacher, and I have a commentary on the entire Bible available online in English also translated into Spanish, and the New Testament portions have been translated into Arabic and Chinese, and we have a number of other translation works going on right now. Our normal method of a Thursday afternoon question and answer is for me to begin with a lead question, usually something that's come in by email or social media or something like that. And so today I want to deal with a question that came in. I believe it came in over email or maybe it was from the YouTube channel. It deals with this simple question, is church membership biblical? Is church membership biblical? So let me read the question that came from Mike. He says, good afternoon, Brother Guzik. I was saved listening to a Calvary Chapel pastor in California, so most of my saved life has been attending a Calvary Chapel. I now live out of state, and I am trying to find a church to attend. I am finding that all the churches have membership requirements where they bring you up on stage and ask for you to provide a letter from your previous church. Should I attend a church that requires membership? This seems so strange to me, but I guess it is quite normal outside of the Calvary Chapel churches. Since I can't find it anywhere in the Bible, what is your take on church membership God's blessings on you. Well, Mike, let me say first and foremost, thank you for this question. And uh, Mike asks the question in this way because he knows that I am a Calvary Chapel pastor. At least that's my assumption. I don't know who Mike is, but again, uh, he references it to the Calvary Chapel churches that he belonged to in Southern California. And I think he puts it this way because, again, that's my background. I am a Calvary Chapel pastor. Calvary Chapel churches is a family of some 2,000 churches around the world. And I'm very grateful, if I can say, for my Calvary Chapel roots and my relationships. Uh, that has been a great blessing. And I, again, I thank God for that. Now, if I could answer Mike's question, his question is simply this. Should I attend a church that requires a membership? And then I'm, I'm kind of morphing that into the broader question, is church membership biblical? Let me give you my take on this. Number one, church membership is important, and I believe it's important biblically, and I'll talk about that in just a moment, but hold on. Church membership is important, yet churches have many different ways that they express membership. In my opinion, maybe this has something to do with my Calvary Chapel roots, kind of the church environment that I grew up with, but in my opinion, real church membership is a matter of the heart. It's a spiritual thing. It's not determined 
fundamentally by having your name on a church membership roll. It's not determined fundamentally by having your uh, a membership card that denotes you to be a member of the church. Real church membership is important. It's biblical, but fundamentally it is a matter of the heart. It's a spiritual thing. And again, and this is my opinion, formal church membership is only as good as the heart membership. And I would say that official or formal church membership can have some real short-term benefits, but in the long run, it all comes back to a true heart membership. Now, there are pastors, even within my own Calvary Chapel family, who have instituted formal church membership and have found great benefit from it. I'm not going to contest that or protest it at all. That's just not the idea. If a pastor, if a group of leaders at a church really believe that the best way for them to implement the biblical idea of church membership is through formal membership or official membership, whatever you want to call it, I'm not going to debate them on that point. Um, however, I just say that from my perspective, the true benefits of formal church membership come from where the heart is at. And if the heart is there, then it doesn't matter really so much. I won't say it matters nothing, but it doesn't matter so much whether or not there is official or formal church membership. And let me say one other thing before I start digging into the biblical idea of church membership. Formal church membership has been used in legalistic and even abusive ways. Now, even if that isn't common, and, and I don't have any real reason to believe that it is common, it does happen, at least from time to time. So wherever you're talking about formal church membership, you, you need to have your antenna up at least just a little bit that, that isn't used in a legalistic or abusive way. Now, let me give you four things, biblically speaking, that real church membership means. Okay, four things, biblically speaking, that real church membership brings. And again, I'm recognizing that church membership means different things to different people. But here's four things that I believe real church membership means. Number one, real church membership means that you belong. Romans chapter 12, verse 5 says this, so we being many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Well, that's church membership. Paul's talking about it in a spiritual sense right there, but nevertheless, it is church membership. We being many are one body in Christ. That's a spiritual thing. That's a spiritual fact. And individually, we are members of one another. You belong to a body. That's real church membership. Then again, uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 and 20 says this, Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. See that? 
you are members of the household of God. It's very important for believers to have the sense that they belong to the body of Christ, that they belong to something that's bigger than themselves, bigger, I should say, to even their own local denomination, and bigger than just their present generation. That stretching back to the Martin Luthers, the John Wesleys, the uh, other great men and women of church history, we are connected vitally to them because we are all together members of one body. You belong. That's real church membership. Real church membership means that you belong. Again, simply put, membership means that you are part of something bigger, that you belong to a group, and there's a sense in which that group belongs to you as well. It also means that you belong even when there are times when you don't feel like you belong. Your belonging is based on the fact that we are one in Jesus, and that goes beyond how I may feel. Here's number two. Real church membership means communication. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 25 says this, Therefore, putting away lying, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. The members or parts of our body have to communicate with each other. If my hand is on fire, and if it doesn't communicate, I'm burning to the rest of the body, the injury is going to become far worse than it would have otherwise. It's important that we communicate with one another in the body of Christ. That's membership. Uh, at a third point here, real church membership means caring. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 25 and 26 say this, that there should be no schism or division in the body, but that the members should have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. Or if one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Again, that's 1 Corinthians 12, verses 25 and 26. You see, the members or the parts of our body need to care for each other. It simply means that each individual unit works together as part of one team. When one member hurts, the whole team feels it. And when one member succeeds, the whole team feels that as well. As members, we care for each other as a team. Membership means that you belong. Membership means that you care. But also real church membership means that you have a part in the work. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 20 and 22 says this, But now indeed there are many members, yet one body. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. No, much rather those members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. Here's the point. The members or parts of our body have to work together to accomplish anything. The, the eye can't work without the brain, or it can't work without the muscles that support the eye. And just as each body part has its own particular role to play, God has given you gifts and talents to use to further his work. Everything and everyone work 
together. And this means supporting God's work at a congregation or with your presence, with your effort, with your financial resources. It's about commitment to the team. So again, biblically speaking, membership is important. What I don't see in the Bible is a specific way given that someone must express membership. Therefore, of the churches that I have pastored, we have not had formal membership or we have not emphasized it, though I believe we have and we would continue to emphasize the spiritual aspects of membership. It's very important that people feel like they belong, that they're part of something bigger, that they have something to contribute, that they care for one another. These are biblical ideas of membership, and that needs to be in the body of Christ. So I would say church membership is important, number one. Number two, churches do have many different ways that they express membership. In my opinion, real church membership is a matter of the heart. It's a spiritual thing. It's important, but it's a heart matter, not a membership card matter. I would also say this. My opinion is, is that official church membership is only as good as heart membership. Now, I do want to add that at least at times, church membership has been used in legalistic and even abusive ways. And even if this isn't common, it does happen. And I don't believe that we are obligated to submit to legalistic or abusive church leadership. Now, I say that that we're not obligated to submit to legalistic or abusive church leadership, recognizing that this is a difficult area. Why is it difficult? Because there are legitimate aspects of submission that people don't like. And because they don't like those aspects of submission, they are often very quick to call things that they don't like legalistic or abusive. Listen, those terms legalistic or abusive sometimes mean church leadership I don't agree with <laughs> or church leadership that tells me I should do something that I don't want to do. And let me tell you, we have to go beyond that. So while I do know, and this is really beyond dispute, that there are legalistic and abusive churches out there. I do not immediately believe every accusation of legalism or abuse on behalf of church leaders. Because I'll tell you, at some time or another, virtually every pastor or church leader is going to be accused of being legalistic or abusive. As soon as you start telling people no, you're going to be accused of being legalistic or abusive. Because there's just something within people that want to do whatever they want to do. So again, is legalism and abuse of church leadership a, a real thing? Yes, it's real, but not every accusation of it is in fact true. So anyway, that's kind of a longer answer, 
Mike, I hope this helps with your question. I just want to do one more thing before I go on to the side chat questions. And I see we have quite a few of them, and that's wonderful. I got a question from Anthony. And Anthony, you know who you are. Anthony asked me, next week, can you please talk about that testimony that you emailed to us about the man who was delivered from drugs? Well, what Anthony is speaking about is uh, Enduring Word, our website, our ministry, we have a couple email lists. Uh, one of them is to get a weekly devotional. You can go to EnduringWord.com and sign up for that. But another one is one that I just keep people informed once a month, if I get around to it once a month, about what God's doing with Enduring Word. And in our August email sent out really just about a week ago, we had such a wonderful testimony. And I'm just going to read it to you. This is what the testimony said. Dear David, I am a recovering alcoholic. Ten months ago, Jesus entered into my life and I surrendered my will to God daily, or I surrender my will to God daily. For 38 years, I was an atheist. And as I sit here today, I have found faith in God and Jesus. I sit here halfway around the world in the Middle East, and your teachings help me to understand how Jesus works through us in our lives. Your podcasts, alongside a recovery group, have been one of the pillars of my recovery and have taught me so much about who I want to be. Thank you for your work, the work you continue to do, and for making the Word of God accessible. I am currently making amends to all the people I've hurt, and I listen to your teachings in my car or at home around the house for inspiration. I'm proud to say that today my kids have a better father, and I am a more honest person. I'm so thankful for your generosity. May God bless you. <laughs> Wasn't that a great letter? So, Anthony, I'm glad that you wanted me to share it. And look, I, I just have a tremendous happiness in knowing that God's word is living, active, and that it's sharper than any two-edged sword. The, the man who wrote that letter said that he was grateful for my generosity, but really, everything that we do here with the Ministry of Enduring Word, it, it's because people are very generous with their prayers and their support. And of course, I'm very grateful to God and, and to all those who take a part in this work for it. So I'm going to get on now. Thank you, uh, Anthony, for sharing that. I'm going to get on now to the questions in the side chat, although I need to make one special note. I hope this doesn't shock anybody, but there will be no live question and answer next week, September 10th. Uh, I'm going to be down uh, close to Palm Springs teaching at Calvary Bible Institute. So there will be no live question and answer next week. Um, now, on to the questions in our side chat. Shilpa asks, Hello, Pastor David. I have a doubt. Paul preached circumcision and uncircumcision does no profit. But why did Paul allow Timothy to get circumcised? Have a good day. Well, Shilpa, you are asking a very good question here. And let me just sort of, of get right to it. You're saying Paul preached that circumcision and uncircumcision does not profit, yet Paul had Timothy circumcised. Timothy, who had a Jewish mother, which made him Jewish officially, and a Gentile father, he had Timothy circumcised. Okay, well, what's going on now? Why would Paul recommend or even require this for Timothy if, as Paul writes in other places, circumcision profits nothing. Here's the distinction. 
when Paul said that circumcision profits nothing, he said it in regard to making us right with Jesus Christ. And you have to know that there's nothing that circumcision nor any other ritual does to make us right before God. Now, there are certain rituals that we do out of obedience. Baptism is obedience. Receiving the Lord's Supper, communion, that's obedience. But those then and in and of themselves are not what saves us. It's what Jesus did on the cross that saves us. So a religious ritual in and of itself does not save us. Circumcision profits nothing for salvation. But Paul did not have Timothy circumcised so that he could be saved or more saved. He asked or requested Timothy to be circumcised to make Timothy more effective in ministry. And really, that's just the very simple distinction we're making. The difference between being effective in ministry and the difference between that and uh what it was for the Apostle Paul, salvation in itself. So two different causes for that. Okay, let me continue on here. Luis says, Hello, Pastor Guzik. What is your take when people say heart attacks, sickness, such as diabetes and high blood pressure, etc., is an attack from the devil? Um, Luis, I, I just have to say, um, this is an area where we need spiritual discernment. We see from the scriptures that sometimes physical illness is used by the devil as a tool of oppression over people. We find several instances of that in the scriptures. We find uh, people being afflicted by what we would call epilepsy. We have people afflicted by what we call hunchback, being bent over. We have people afflicted by what we would call paralysis. And all of those, there was a very definite demonic hand in them. In other places in the scripture, we see that there is no specific demonic cause for an illness or contribution to an illness, but it's just part of the fact that we live in a fallen world. I have come to this determination for my own life. When a trial or a difficulty comes, I don't invest energy into trying to figure out whether or not that trial or difficulty came from God or whether or not it came from the devil. Sometimes I don't even know if I can tell in the final analysis, but this is what I do know. When I find myself in a trial or a difficulty, I know that God wants to use it for his glory and that the devil wants to use it to lie, steal, kill, and destroy. So my determination is to submit it to God and to see his work happen. I think that sometimes it's just beyond us to believe that, or to know, I should say, not to believe, but to know it's beyond us to know whether or not a particular attack, a particular trial or difficulty is from God or from the devil. These things sometimes are just spiritually discerned. I'll say one other thing. We are often very quick to blame on the devil things that we have caused by our own choices and our own flesh. 
Um, if somebody has health problems because they haven't been eating right, living right, exercising right, and all the rest, then I think it's an excuse for them to blame it on Satan when really it's something that has been very much their own contribution to it. So again, Louise, I, I hope that helps answer your question. Donald asks this question, why are Christians so afraid of dying? Well, Donald, uh, Christians should not be afraid of dying. And I, I don't know why. Maybe there's several reasons. Sometimes I suppose it could be just because of unbelief. They don't really believe what the Bible says about the fact that what we live in this life is actually just a very short, bare glimpse of what we have throughout eternity. Maybe they don't really believe that. Or it could be something else. Many times people are afraid not so much of death as they are afraid of dying. Now, I don't expect anybody to be enthusiastic about dying. Um, dying can be painful. Dying can be a terrible tragedy, on and on. But death is not something that believers should fear. So while I would never uh, try to make a believer feel bad for dying, I uh, have a fear of dying, to put it more properly. I do understand that as believers, we should not be afraid of death itself, and we should realize that it is a conquered foe in Jesus Christ. Okay, let me go on to the next question. Uh, Gracia says, will there be baseball during the millennial reign? Well, Gracia, I'm going to say yes. I don't know if you can tell, but the bobblehead behind me over my shoulder here is a bobblehead of Sandy Koufax, who was a great, great pitcher, perhaps the best left-hander ever to pitch in baseball. Um, but yeah, why not? There will be many good things as part of the millennium. Why not baseball on a millennial earth? Uh, let me go on. Joanne asks, good, great question, Mike. Same issue here. Okay, wonderful. Glad to hear that. Um, Kristen asks, can God hear our prayers when we say our prayers in our mind or only out loud? Okay, Kristen, that's a great question. Can God hear our prayers when we only think our prayers or do we have to say our prayers? Let me answer that by saying that yes, God can, of course, read our thoughts. He knows our thoughts. So it is possible for a believer to communicate with God in their thoughts. However, I think that it is good and healthy to speak our prayers. I'm sorry, I can't remember the biblical reference right away. I think it's in one of the minor prophets. But it talks about coming before God and bringing words with you. I like that. Bringing words with you as you seek God. It is helpful for me, it's probably helpful for you, to actually speak out my prayers, even if it's almost just in a whisper. There's something about articulating my prayers and saying them that make them more focused, more real, more brought before God. 
on my side. On God's side, he can read our thoughts just as much as he can hear our words. But here's the simple idea that the benefit for praying out loud is real. I'm not saying that we can only pray out loud. Yes, it's okay to pray with your thoughts. But the benefit of praying out loud is real, but the benefit is on our part, not on God's part. And again, great question there, Kristen. Let me go on to the next question from Jean, who asks, why is Jerusalem sometimes called Sodom or Egypt in the Bible? Well, Jean, Jerusalem is sometimes called that to give it the association of wickedness. Number one, we recognize that in the biblical idea, Sodom being the place of great depravity and Egypt being the place of Israel's slavery, that those are associations, of course, connected to wickedness. So when God wanted to call Jerusalem uh, as being a place filled with wickedness, he could refer it that way in the scriptures. But the other reason as well, and this is more relevant to Sodom than it is to Egypt, but it also has the connotation of judgment. God brought judgment upon Sodom and Gomorrah. And in other ways, not in the same way as Sodom and Gomorrah, God also brought judgment upon Egypt. So when God wants to make the association of wickedness and judgment, that's why he would refer to Jerusalem, which is a special city to God. He would refer to Jerusalem as either Sodom or Egypt. Again, good question. Bina asks, praise the Lord, Pastor Dave, how is tribulation different from the severe persecution that Christians are facing right now? Thank you. You are a blessing to us. Well, Bina, you're very welcome. Um, here's the way to understand this. When the Bible uses the term tribulation or trial, um, th there's a common Greek word. Uh, the Greek word is philipsis. And it's commonly translated these many different ways, uh, trial, um, tribulation, pressure. It has the idea of pressure. Tribulation or trial is a very general word that can refer to many different things. It includes persecution, but it is greater than persecution. So we would say, that our dear brothers and sisters who in different parts of the world are undergoing severe persecution, they are losing their jobs and being deprived of their livelihood. They are denied education. They are um, being physically assaulted. They are being murdered. They are being put in prison for their Christianity. For all of these things, our heart goes out to our dear brothers and sisters around the world who are part of the severely persecuted church. Now, I believe that persecution can be lesser and still be real, but, but these severely persecuted brothers, they are undergoing significant trial, tribulation in the form of persecution. But this philipsis, this tribulation, this affliction that comes to believers it can come in other ways other than persecution. 
So I hope that answers that for you there, Bina. Um, tribulation, affliction, trial. These are the broad categories. This is the broad category. Persecution is one aspect of that. Christian asks a question. Um, greetings, Pastor David. Will the rapture happen pre or post great tribulation? Well, Christian, in my perspective, I believe it will happen before or at the very start of this last seven-year period, which is commonly referred to as the Great Tribulation, though we often say that the tribulation will only be really terrible, the last half of it, but leave that aside. I, I lose it. Now, uh, my brothers and sisters who believe differently from that, maybe they have a whole different conception of how the reign of Jesus will come to pass on this earth. Um, maybe they have a different conception of how the catching away of the church, as mentioned in 1 Thessalonians, relates to um, this last seven-year period. Uh, but this is my take, and you can go on my YouTube channel and look for some different links that speak of passages where I deal with this in much greater depth. So, But that's my opinion on this. Um, Joanne asks a question. Hi, Pastor. I'm from Calvary Chapel, Escondido, now in very rural um, New England. They want me to be rebaptized into their church. This really seems odd to me. Uh, Joanne, I would just say, be careful of that. Um, be careful of that. I would want to know does that group believe that anybody outside their denomination is truly saved? There are some strange and erring Christian groups that believe that nobody outside their denomination is saved. Therefore, you must be baptized within their denomination in order to be saved. That is something that I think is just false. It's wrong. It's a very divisive and partisan way to look at God's family. So I would simply say that's something to be careful of. I can imagine a scenario where it wouldn't be so bad. In other words, somebody says something like this. Well, I believe people can be saved outside right now. That's not the question. But the only way we know you were baptized properly is if you're baptized. I, I can conceive of some scenarios where that wouldn't be so bad. But for me, at the very least, it's a red flag. And I would want to know more about what that church teaches and how they view other people in God's family. Agnes has a question. She says, hi, Pastor David. An Orthodox Christian teacher teaching on end times says that a lot of Matthew chapter 24 was fulfilled during the time of Jesus's disciples after his ascension. Agnes, this is true. This is the interpretation that many Christians give, maybe even the majority of Christians give uh, in the world today and throughout church history. The, the dominant way to see Matthew chapter 24 is to regard it as things that have been fulfilled when the Romans conquered Jerusalem and destroyed the temple in 70 AD. And the main reason for that is because in Matthew chapter 24, 
Jesus makes a reference to this generation. Well, I would kind of say it this way. As I've carefully studied Matthew chapter 24, I believe that you have to decide what is going to be the center of what Jesus said there that everything else revolves around. And if you make the statement that Jesus made about this generation in Matthew chapter 24, if you make that the center and interpret everything else in light of that, well, you could come to that conclusion. I'm not saying that that conclusion is necessary. I'm saying you could come to that conclusion. However, I think that something else that Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24 is really the center of what he's saying. And I think that Jesus indicates that just by the words, just by the context of Matthew chapter 24, the Olivet Discourse. The real center or core of Matthew chapter 24 is the abomination of desolation. And I think that we should understand that what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24 around that idea. So to put it frankly, if you take what I believe to be a literal, plain meaning of the abomination of desolation, it would lead us to say that this was not fulfilled in 70 AD. Now, I'm not saying that's the only thing that leads us to believe that it was not fulfilled in 70 AD, but it's a major thing. And so um, I would just simply disagree with the interpretation that says that virtually everything in Matthew 24 was fulfilled uh, in 70 AD or before that. And that um, even though I recognize that that has been the majority Christian interpretation uh, throughout the centuries. I'll just have you know that from my part, I am willing to break with the majority of Christian interpretation from time to time. Now, I, I want to recognize and be gracious. I don't want to think that, you know, everybody in the church was stupid and tell me or those who believe just like me on a particular, not at all. But, but neither do I want to yield what I think is the true and contextual and proper meaning of Scripture just to the majority opinion of what Christians have believed in the past or in the present day. Um, so that, that's where I would come at that. I hope that helps you there, Agnes. Benjamin asks, uh, hello, pastor. Oh, wait, I lost Benjamin's question. Here it is. Um, hello, pastor. I have a friend who is having dreams about change. He told me a dream he had about light, and I did my best to show him Jesus through his dream. Is that okay? Dream interpretation is something I struggle with because I know God speaks to us through dreams, but I don't know if it was my place to speak into his life because I'm not a leader or a pastor. Well, Benjamin, let me just say that, first of all, I believe it's possible for God to speak through a dream, but it's also possible for a person to be deceived through a dream. So we can't automatically say every dream is of God or every dream is of the devil. You, you can't take either one. This is a place where spiritual discernment is necessary. For you to preach Jesus to this person, even if you use the dream as a starting point, the important thing is that you're bringing Jesus to them. And Benjamin, I want you to know this. 
you don't have to be a pastor or a leader to tell people about Jesus. D to take some experience or something in their life, somebody has a, a dream and say, well, let let's use this as a way to talk about Jesus. That's a good thing. And again, you don't have to be a pastor or a leader to do that. The Bible says that in some way, every one of us are servants of God, called to his purpose and his plan. And we should take a very real recognition of that. So I hope that helps you there, Benjamin. Philip asks, if we've given our life to Christ and repented, do we also need to be baptized to be saved? Bless you. Uh, God bless you, your ministry and enduring word. Okay, Philip, um, I'm going to give it to you the best way I understand this, even though I know that there's some people who disagree. But my understanding would be to say this. Baptism is necessary. I'll say it again. If you're a believer, if you've been born again by God's spirit, baptism is necessary. However, it's not necessary for salvation, but it is necessary for obedience. And there's something really wrong with a Christian, with a believer who doesn't want to obey Jesus. So it's necessary for obedience. It's not necessary for salvation. I can think of um, hypothetical situations where somebody could be saved and not be baptized. You know, we talk about the thief of the cross. We talk about this person, that person. Okay, I get all that. But just to say this, baptism is necessary for obedience. Every Christian should be baptized. And I'll say this quickly without making a big point about it. I am not a believer in infant baptism, baby baptism. I'm not in agreement with the practice of it. I'm not in agreement with the theology of it, even though there is not one theology of infant baptism. There's several different groups that have somewhat distinctive ideas about why they believe God wants them to baptize infants. The dominant one in the Protestant world is based on the idea of covenant theology. And in the way that covenant theology is explained and expressed, especially as a justification for infant baptism, I very definitely disagree with it and think that it's just a wrong interpretation. And I bring this up, not because I'm a divisive man and I want to divide, not, not that at all, but I believe that the teaching of infant baptism is something that actually has a bad effect, a real bad effect in people's lives. Um, there are many things that people can be incorrect in their teaching about. Incorrect about this, incorrect about that, but it doesn't create much of a real harm in people's lives. I believe that there's a real harm that comes from infant baptism simply to say that there are multitudes. Could I say millions? I don't doubt that the number is millions. There are millions in hell who assumed they were saved because they were baptized as babies, who were told they were saved because they were baptized as babies. 
that is a teaching that is not only wrong theologically, wrong in its practice, but it does real harm in the world. So anyway, I'll, I'll leave that. Um, Jane asks, uh, Samson was given to God as a Nazarite before birth. Was his corrupt and angry life wholly because of his personality and decision? If God knew how he would be, why did he make Samson like that? Okay, Jane, that's a great question. You know, you take a look at the life of Samson, and here was this profane, outrageous man that God gifted mightily and used mightily. And I believe God's not done doing that. God will sometimes raise up profane, offensive, strange people just because there's some Philistines that need to be smited, smote, whatever you want to say. Now, Jane's asking a question, well, why? What, what did God make Samson crude and profane and disobedient? Or was that something else? And, and I would say this, Jane, the way I would understand or explain this is that God gives us gifts and personality inclinations. And those are things that can be used mightily for God's glory, for his kingdom. However, you could say that every gift has a corresponding weakness. So if someone is strong and independent, that can be a gift, but they can also use that independence to become a rebel who just doesn't care about God or anything else. Um, someone who has great faith, that can be a wonderful gift of God, but it can also make them reckless and careless. So I believe that God gifted Samson in certain ways, but those same gifts had corresponding weaknesses or potentials for weakness. And those were, for the most part, things that Samson fell into. So I, that's the way I would explain it, Jane. Um, Luis says, what made you start a Bible commentary and how long did it take you to complete the English one? Okay, well, wow, that's a great question, um, Luis. Okay, I'll put it to you this way. I never set out to write Bible commentary. That was never my intention. I, I never said, I, I never looked at a Bible commentator like uh, G. Camel Morgan. I just picked this off my shelf. I never looked at a Bible commentary like G. Camel Morgan writing on the Gospel of Matthew. And I never said, hey, I want to do that. I could be a Bible commentator too. I never said that. What I found out through some very strange circumstances is that what I prepared for myself as teaching notes when I would teach verse by verse through the Bible, what I prepared for myself as teaching notes was useful for other people as Bible commentary. So I just kept on preparing my teaching notes and found out that that could be used by others for Bible commentary. The people who first put my Bible commentary in line were the good people of the Blue Letter Bible. And I will be always grateful to the people of Blue Letter Bible for putting my Bible commentary online and for continuing to host it. It's a tremendous Bible resource. So um, 
you could say that I never intended to write Bible commentary. I'm just teaching through the Bible and found out that my notes could be of help to other people. Now, you also ask, how long did it take you to complete the English one? Well, that English Bible commentary contains work that goes back over about a span of about 30 years. Um, I started preparing my Bible teaching notes in a certain format in the mid-1980s. Uh, let's say it was about 86. Then about 10 years later, in 1996, my commentary went online. And then I believe it was in, in 2017 that I finally finished something on the entire Bible. Now, there's another sense in which I'll never be finished with this work because it's always something to improve, to edit, to work over. So I'm never finished in the sense of stopped working on it, but um, it was a milestone to have something through the entire Bible. Continuing on, Sono says, and uh, I'm going to probably make this one of my last few questions. Sono says, thank you for another Thursday with you, Pastor David. Can you explain what godliness is? I know what Peter said to add godliness to our faith. Okay, that's great. Um, Sono, I can explain what godliness is pretty simply by just taking the English word and saying it's God-likeness. It's being like God. God is loving, so we're loving. God is merciful, so we're merciful. God is forgiving, so we're forgiving. God is just, so we are just. God is righteous, so we are righteous. Godliness is something like God-likeness. It's being like God. And so that's a very simple, it's just um, the work of God in our life is to create us and to transform us into the image of Jesus Christ, and God is doing that more and more along the way in our lives. We should be becoming more and more godly, godlike. Not that we become gods, never. We're not trying to say that. But in our character and our conduct, it becomes more like God's character and conduct. So hope that helps you there. Um, Rebecca says, Hi, Pastor David. I know a woman who believes in the mid-trib rapture. Uh, I take a pre-trib stance. She asked me, why then do, do those who come to Christ during the tribulation not also escape God's wrath? Well, I, I just believe that this is part of God's appointed plan that those who would come to Christ during the Great Tribulation, during that last seven-year period, that they would have to endure, if you want to say, pay a price. Not paying a price for their sin, but pay a price, a great price for being obedient to Jesus Christ. And that would be to yield their own life. Um, God has never promised to keep all believers from all tribulation. But he did pray that we would be counted worthy to escape the judgment to come. So I understand people make this um, uh, argument. What about those? I would say as well that the book of Revelation seems to regard people who put their faith in Jesus during the Great Tribulation as being those of a special kind or category. 
Some people call them tribulation saints. But since there is special mention of them in the book of Revelation, I would say that it's not crazy to think that they have uh, this unique thing of having to go through and lay down their lives during the Great Tribulation. Uh, Tiana writes and says, What is a strong man? The difference between a strong man and a stronghold. How do Christians handle a person, Christian, who has a strong man? Okay, Tiana, let me answer this question the best way I can, just to say, the only reference I can think of, now, if there's more than this, I hope somebody will let me know, but the only reference I can think of to the strong man is in sort of a parable or an illustration that Jesus gave, and in that parable or illustration, the strong man represented Satan. So I would just say that the strong man is an illustration, a representation of Satan and his strength and influence. I don't know if I would make it more complicated than that. Um, a strong hold, if you want to say, is a tactic, a strategy, an attack of Satan. Satan himself is the strong man. If there is more to the idea of the strong man in the scriptures, I'm not immediately aware of it. So I hope that answers the question there. Um, all right, just a couple more here. Uh, matter of fact, I'll make this the last one. Hello, Pastor Dave. What are good works? Are good works only extraordinary things, or can good works be simple as being a wife, husband, mother, or even a slave? Well, why good works include simple things? I might even say that good works are especially simple things. Look, let's face it. When we do something dramatic for the Lord or for somebody else, there's always the possibility that we're going to get some praise or attention for that. And maybe we deserve to get some praise or attention for it. But when we simply do the simple things of life and do them unto God's glory, there is great reward in those things. Sometimes Christians need to be less focused on being world changers and simply put a focus on being faithful and honoring God, serving others right where you're at. There's a place for both. There's a place for the world changer mentality, but there's also a very precious place for that frame of mind that just says, I'm a husband, I'm a mother, I'm a father, I'm a son or a daughter, I'm a worker, as you'd say, a slave. I'm going to glorify God right where I'm at. That's a very biblical way to think. All right, well, I am going to leave off here. Sorry, I didn't get to those last questions. I will copy them down and make note of them and maybe get to them in a future question and answer program. But I just want to end today saying thank you and by reminding you all that there will not be a live Q&A next Thursday. I'm going to be out of town teaching at Calvary Bible Institute. Um, but anyway, uh, thank you for joining me today. Thank you for your prayers. Thank you for just supporting what God is doing in and through Enduring Word. It's a great privilege to just have this wonderful family that God uses to bring some good Bible resources out to the world. Thank you for joining me today, and God bless you. 
You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.